You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Room Now Daily Recap. This is where our faculty gets together with some wine, some beer, or maybe just a bottle of water and rehash the day. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Room Now. Daily recap. This is where our faculty gets together. That is the live stream on YouTube. So we're on multiple channels here. We're alive for you guys that have signed up for this. And then those who are out there in the netherworld, they're listening to this on YouTube. Um, I'm joined by the Room Now faculty. I'm going to uh, tell you where they're from and they're going to get into it. Orlai Nain, Nain, sorry, Orlai is from Glasgow. Uh, Richard Conway is uh, from Dublin. Bella Meta is from Special Surgery in New York. Uh, Pedro Castillo is from Dallas, Texas, and UT Southwestern. And Yusuf is from Leeds. I'm Jack Cush in Dallas as well. Um, we're glad to have you join us and um, partake in this exercise. If you have any questions, uh, we have a chat field. We'll, you know, a lot of people like to put their comments down about what you agree or don't agree with. But if you have any questions for the faculty, just jot those in there. We'll try to get to them at the end. What we're going to do is we're going to review. Uh, abstracts, great debate, plenary session, afternoon stuff. Let's go and I'm going to open it up to the um, the faculty. Anybody want to talk about an abstract that they liked from this morning, a poster abstract? Uh, yeah, if I may, if I may start. So oh, there's, there's oh, I don't think I am. Can you not hear me? No, we can hear you. You can hear. Oh, that's good. <clears throat> Right. So, yeah, I, there's one that I actually really liked, uh, number one for one. Um, it was actually looking at influenza vaccination coverage in our population. And so we kind of know already that this coverage is suboptimum. Um, I think one of the issues they highlighted that I saw was really interesting was that basically some of the factors that, was that were associated with that were just patients' concerns and beliefs. Which, which basically means that this is easily addressable. We need to speak to them. And because we're in the situation where we are giving boosters for COVID-19 anyway, I think it's a perfect opportunity to just talk to them and to maybe, um, you know, discuss to also give them the influenza jab as they get their COVID jab. Um, that, that was just like, you know, simple message that I said was, was quite interesting. Uh, I, I'll remind the audience that um, if you're a military recruit, you get about 29 vaccines at a time via pneumatic guns. So the idea of giving uh, multiple uh, immunizations at a time is uh, is a well-researched um, sort of concept. Anybody have any other reactions to this uh, this particular poster? Okay. Um, anybody else have a good, a good poster they want to bring up? I think I can yeah. go with, oh, sorry, yes, you, you can start. I can no, go ahead, Bella. Okay, so I think one of the posters in the auto-inflammatory realm uh, was Jack inhibitors and uh, see if they, they help in uh, JIA or still adult onset stills disease. Um, and these, these are patients that are difficult to treat. Uh, and sometimes when they're refractory, there's a lot of talk about JAK inhibitors or trying them. But I, I think one of the main message from the poster was that 
it's it, it, individually like a monotherapy. I don't think Jack inhibitors are cutting it. Uh, they're not like, helping us getting the steroids down too much. Uh, but but I think as an adjuvant therapy, it probably can work in some of these patients uh, with adult and uh, pediatric stills disease. So I'm interested in that too. And I, it was eight patients from France. Most of them were systemics and uh, no remissions with the Jack inhibitor. They were refractory patients, by the way, right? Yes. So they, they failed other things. Um, there were no remissions and half of them had a partial response. You know, there's a, the literature is full of um, a lot of anecdotal reports of Jack's looking really good True. in systemic JIA, right? And All and, these case reports that have been popping up, but right. this is like a little more, I mean, it's a case series, but you know, in Stills disease, even for eight patients, it's a lot of, it's it's good amount of data. It speaks to the need for trials to base your your, your practices on rather than case reports. But that was uh, that was enlightening. Um, you, you had a, a one that you want to talk about? Yeah, so I've got a poster that uh, I'm quite uh, interested on. Um, it's poster um, 0133, abstract number. Um, so this is about uh, cancer rate, um, uh, cervical cancer um, screening rate. Um, so because we're all now busy with COVID pandemics, I think we shouldn't be, you know, you know we shouldn't forget about other things that are important as well. So they were looking at, you know, the, the time, you know, between this and the screening and there was a delay. Um, so the, the mean average uh, of the screening was about four and a half years. Um, so it's so usually the recommendation about three years and there's quite a different various guidelines. Some say one year, some say three years. So, you know, there's quite a variability there. So, but importantly, certainly there's a delay there. I mean, that was the average four and a half years. And of this cohort, um, 4%, sort of four people, which is like, you know, uh, four people develop um, sort of cancer out of, you know, 140 patients that they looked at. So I think this is something that we need to, you know, to look into, you know, lupus women particularly. Yeah. So those were lupus patients in that cohort. Yeah, right? lupus women. Yeah. yeah because we know a... that lupus women have a high rate of cervical dysplasia right. because of immunosuppressant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, um, uh, there's a little bit. So I, I was expecting to write an article at some point about the, the, the consequences of COVID, all the missed appointments, all the things that should have happened, didn't happen. Um, actually, Richard, you, you found one today about testing, didn't you? Did you see, was that your, your tweet today about um, the intervals between testing during the COVID era that they were... Uh, uh, oh, yeah, and the, the laboratory testing, yeah, that uh, patients weren't uh, getting their, their liver function tests, that poster was in particular about, done at the intervals they showed, the less than 50%. Yeah. Um, and even despite the, the best efforts of the, the authors of that, they didn't improve at above 50%. Yeah these, things, yeah, these things have happened. And I, and I think that we're to blame. You know, my opinion is we are to blame because we were just dealing with COVID as best we could. But how many of us actually had mass mailings to patients about don't stop your medicines, don't worry, you're not going to die at home, you know, from this bug coming in through the windowsill, you know, um, make sure you make your appointment, make sure you get your labs, you need to see your primary. I mean, we no, nobody did this. We were just hoping patients were to call and ask for questions. And many did, but there were a lot that didn't. And these kind of events happen. I think that's, uh, now luckily we're coming out, I think of COVID by certainly by mid next year, we, this is going to be done with, but there's a lesson to be learned here. I think, think we, go ahead, Richard. Do you think we could or should have done that, Jack? Like, we'll say it again? Do you think we could or should have done that? Like, yes, I think we should have. I think it should have, but I guess, you know, this caught us by surprise. But I think we knew by, you know, started March of 2020, 
I think six months later, we should have been more proactive. Um, and, you know, the college did a good job of getting data together for us to tell our patients. Um, and, and it turns out a lot of those recommendations that I even criticized were probably correct about, you know, holding uh, certain drugs and, and in certain situations. And then the updates saying what drugs to hold during vaccination. But I think that the our interaction with our patients is... Um, it's something that we'll always spend our whole career working on. And this, this challenged us even a little bit more. So I think, uh, you're going to say something, Pete? yeah, I, I was just going to say, you know, with the evolving information, it was a little bit difficult. I think even for us, even if we had communicated with them, uh, knowing exactly what kind of recommendations to get. I mean, sometimes it was from Monday, I would change something that I was saying on Friday, you know, um, and, uh, but I think this is a great opportunity because these are the kinds of things that are going to happen. And when they happen, it should at least, the, the silver lining is we know what things we were good at. We know what things we were not good at. And we can work on preparing for the next time something like this happens. I mean, and the next time might just be another COVID variant, right? right. Um, Who else had a good, uh, a good poster to, talk, to mention here? Richard, I had one, Jack. Um, it was uh, poster 120 by uh, Beth Wallace from Ann Arbor. Um, it was looking at fibromyalgia in rheumatoid and how that determined uh, glucocorticoid, long-term glucocorticoid use. So um, can, you, can you define the fibromyalgia-ness? Uh, I, I accuse my in-laws of that all the time, but um, so, does, it have, does it actually have a definition? So the, there's, uh, there's this thing called the fibromyalgia survey questionnaire. And if you, if you get a certain score on that, it classes you into being low, moderate, high, very high risk of, or very high fibromyalgia symptoms. Um, and yeah, essentially what she and they found was that if you were in the high or very high groups, you were much more likely to be on long-term glucocorticoids, odds ratio of five for that. Wow. So we're essentially treating fibromyalgia with steroids in people who have rheumatoid arthritis and probably making it worse. My, my surrogate for that, that Pete and I use in clinic is a, a one-page survey that patients get to mark up what hurts today, how much pain do you have, how, what, what you know, review systems. And the more ink that they put on that thing, the more that fibromyalgia score goes up. And I think that you know, there, there should be a, a big red flag when we see that. Um, I, I like that paper. I was a little bothered by the term, but I think it, uh, it has a strong teaching point. Yeah. All right, let's go on to the great debate. Um, uh, vocal sporn versus bulimumab. First off, let's see how this panel would vote. I think um, the vote went something like um, your patient's not controlled on mycophenolate. What are you adding? And let's say it's in the first six months of the disease. Are you adding Balumab? Raise your left hand. Okay. And, and, and you go on vocal spore and raise your right hand. All right. It's like top row versus bottom row. Um, it's a standoff. All right. So who wants to make, use your or lupus guy. Um, uh, you would probably spend more time looking at lupus than all of us. Um, what did you take away from that, that debate? Yeah. So um, in th what I take away is um, it's all about personalizing therapy. So you can't, you know, treat, you know, everyone make it standardized. So it has to be on the patient's features you know, how bad is the EGFR, whether do they have certain extra renal you know, manifestation at all. So then after that, you can, uh, you know, ba ba balance up, you know, whichever you prefer, uh, you know, vocosporin or, or bulimumab. 
Yeah, um, Lake of Barbosa and Dallas mentions the vote actually went in favor of Oklahoma's I would argue this panel is a little bit more intelligent than the audience, and uh, that's why we were split. Um, but then again, I'm probably biased. Um, what I liked about that debate was the two debaters didn't really differ in their opinions. They made their case for their drug, but they both said, you know, we should be using these drugs. And I think many of us probably aren't using these drugs. And that's sort of an, another issue. Let's, uh, um, uh, Orly, what do you think about, well, why are you in favor of vocal sporin? Um, the thing is, <laughs> it's quite, uh, as, as you was saying, I mean, there's so many different, you know, type of diseases, so many different phenotypes. I think it's really difficult. It, it, it has to be a case-to-case -case decision. Um, I think I think overall, I was maybe more convinced by you know these data, but I mean it has to be a, 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 a you know a case to case basis. I would not say just give that to everybody. You know, I would I would not say that. You know, going with the calcineurin inhibitor, I think it has more biologic um, interjections than does a B cell specific agent and. Lupus is many different kinds of disease. There's a B cell driven disease. There's a interferon alpha driven disease. There's probably a myeloid driven disease and whatnot. Virginia Pasquale showed that um, a few years ago and maybe you get a little bit more coverage with vocal spore and that's kind of what I'm, why I'm on your side. But uh, Bella, you, you like the Belimab data, why? I think the way the vocal spore trials, I mean, they're good, but um, you know, when you actually read them, uh, the, the way they dosed other things like say even rituximab, it's, it's, it's not how we usually do it in practice. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, access, right. We've been using Belimumab. It works. Um, it's, it's, a, I don't know. It, it, it always is difficult to suddenly change what is working. And if it's not, then yes. And again, it's going to be a case to case basis, but I'm, I'm saying that it's not going to be the first thing I'll do. I think one of the reasons why a lot of, a lot of, why a lot of people went in, in for bilumab, I think they can see they more safely add bilumab to mycophenolate. I think people worry about the safety of adding the calcineurin inhibitor to mycophenolate. You're going to say use? Yeah, I think maybe because there's different geographical re uh, region as well, experience, because, you know, you guys in America have been using bilumab more. I mean, in the UK, you know, the, 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 the trial was positive to 11 and, and we only got to use it at 2017. So we have not really had much experience. And um, I actually had published actually cases before where, where we use, so we, we found two patients had um, you know, uh, lupus nephritis on bilimumab. Uh, one which is like a new, they've never had lupus nephritis before, which we published. So, I mean, it's only a small numbers, but certainly it, you know, it, it wouldn't stop me from using it in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Richard, your opinions on, on these therapies? Yeah, I'm in Ireland. We don't have either of these drugs, uh, so I won't be using either of them. I'll be using tacrolimus. But uh, I, my reading of the data from the trials is I, I actually like the, the renal outcome data better with bilimumab. Um, and there is this thing about voclosporin having an effect on proteinuria that isn't actually correlated with the, the actual renal outcomes. Right. Um, so... Yeah, slightly going towards Bulimumab, but uh, not having strong feelings. Uh, but then again, uh, who am I to di disagree with Michelle Petrie? 
Well, um, actually, Dr. Castillo disagreed with her, and um, he, you, you, can, you have access to these drugs. Do you, which, which have you been using? Or um, oh, yeah, well, you know, I actually ended up voting on the side of Benlisa, but I think or Benlimumab, but uh, but it was, um, I mean, it's basically because it's it's a such a it's a binary question, right, or an answer, uh, which is difficult um, because obviously it's a case by case basis. Um, I. I got to be honest, though, I, I feel like in my experience, I feel like the nephrologist is often the one that ends up choosing these um, these treatments. And so I was wondering what the rest of the panel thought about that. And and uh, when do you step in and, and sort of, you know, give your opinion that, hey, actually, I think that I know you were going to go with, you know, Bellamab or, or the other. Uh, and I think it should do this one. And I think that reflects where you practice. I think some of us are. Um, don't use nephrologists very much. I mean, I seldom would use a nephrologist. Um, um, and when I was a fellow at UT Southwestern, uh, Pete, we, um, we had a nephrologist working in our division, but we didn't really get involved. And then after I left, the, a lot of lupus patients ended up being managed by nephrology. So I think it depends on what the local practices are as to whether nephrology is there. And, and they'll use a whole lot more tacrolimus than anybody else. But um, who, who does co-management in this group with uh, nephrology? Most of the group. Okay, so that's kind of where, where all of you are. Any last comments about this, uh, um, this debate? I think it was a good subject. Yeah, most of you are in agreement. All right, next was, was a really hot session on uh, the plenary session, which discussed a lot of different things from Risenkizumab to um, lupus nephritis and health disparities, um, abatacept, cognitive dysfunction in lupus, and then immunosuppression with COVID. Anybody want to um, tell me why one really stood out for you? Richard? I, I suppose I, I can talk about risenkizumab. It's uh... It, it certainly works. My big thing with these drugs is we've got so many of them now. I don't know which one to use. Um, it's like, how do we choose between them? We're, we're picking up these little tiny pieces. Maybe this is better for enticitis. Maybe. But really, I don't know. And I think we, we need to know that. We need some head-to-head -head trials. Yeah. And, well, there's a few things there. One, um, I have a good friend in Brooklyn, Dr. Richie Yardy, who says, I got... I got more drugs for psoriatic arthritis than I have psoriatic arthritis patients. And, and he too is bothered by this. Um, it's good to have options. Rheumatologists like options. Um, dermatologists have been very swayed by head to head trials where aisle 23 has looked very, very good. You know, aisle 17 basically knocked down the TNF inhibitors, aisle 23 and 1223 first. And then now 23 has done the same. Um, so uh, I don't, have anybody on risenkizumab? Actually, maybe one or two, because uh, largely been only indicated for psoriasis. But it's going to get a um, you know psoriatic arthritis indication. Um, has anybody else anybody else been using this? Not so much yet. I guess I guess the insurance companies will tell us what to use in the other way around. If we if we don't know, they'll tell us. So we need to find right. out. You need to move to Texas, where patients can sue their insurance company for malpractice, and so we're a little bit more able to, you know, push the envelope. Now, yeah, someone would have to, uh, uh, with psoriatic arthritis at least, have to fail a few drugs before you could put them on um, either the Tremphia uh, IL-23 inhibitor or the rising Um, 
um, the Sky Rizzi drug. Uh, anybody else like a, a, any of these other plenary sessions? Yep, so a fun, um, quite interesting presentation uh, from uh, Professor John Henley um, about cognitive impairment in lupus. Uh, so we do, you know, quite a lot of like, you know, our lupus patient always complain about brain fog and can't quite remember attention span and everything. And um, so they found that in, in their unselected cohorts, there were about 48% uh, people um, did, did have a cognitive impairment based, based on the, uh, the test. Uh, and then uh, quite a majority of them had lupus anticoagulant positive as well. Um, so what, what they found, so they did two types of MRI. So they did one, um, the functional MRI, and also the other one is DCE MRI. So the DCE MRI can pick up if there's any leakage in blood-brain barrier. So I think first, uh, what they found uh, is they found uh, there's quite a lot of uh, functional um, uh, abnormality uh, in terms of connectivity using the, uh, using the functional MRI in people who have cognitive impairment compared to lupus patient without cognitive impairment and also healthy control. Uh, and also what they found as well, um, there's also increased you know, blood uh, brain barrier leakage in people with cognitive impairment. So that's why they thought, you know, they will do more work on this and potentially blood brain barrier could be a, a potential target in the future. So I think that probably quite interesting as well. You know, if you do um, surveys, um, over half of patients with lupus will have um, neurocognitive uh, manifestations that would qualify as neuropsychiatric lupus, but the number is actually really quite low. And then trying to diagnose subclinical diseases, which is what they were doing today. You know, the question is, what does that mean? Very few of their patients in that study, um, it was a good study, large study, um, actually had a prior diagnosis of neuropsychiatric lupus or what we call lupus cerebritis. There, the question is, what are the, you, know, you don't do any of those tests and you don't have access to any of those tests, so what are you gonna do? I can tell you, uh, I studied this for many years. Blood-brain barrier is best measured by something called Q-albumin. It is the CSF albumin times 1,000 divided by the serum albumin, and it's uh, the number should be less than nine. A lot of lupus patients have, um, and like 20, 25%, and that's what they showed, somewhere between 10 and 30% of lupus patients had an elevated or leakage of the blood-brain barrier by their much more exact test. But around, around that number, we'll have a Q-albumin that's between 9 and 15. And that's probably okay. The only problem is that that screws up your other indices like the IgG index and things like that. But very high levels are not lupus cerebritis. They're infection and vascular events. And there it goes to 30, 60, 100 as your Q-albumin. I was hoping that uh, I asked the question, but they didn't get my question in about showing the correlated, uh, whether what you can correlate those results with or what becomes clinically useful, we don't really know. But this is, I think, uh, uh, a, one of those subclinical things that we probably need to pay attention to. I like the ARIA study, that's abatacept being given to high-risk individuals, had arthralgias, they were ACPA positive, they had an MRI, and they looked at an MRI outcome was the primary endpoint, inflammation, mainly, um, um, I wanna say mainly tenosynovitis, um, at six months and, you know, a hundred patients, half got one drug, half got the other. It was a clear slam dunk for abatacid versus placebo. Um, the numbers were highly significant. I want to say, uh, in, in MRI scores, improvement in MRI was seen 61% on abatacid, 31% on the other drug. And it was even better for actual avoiding RA was 8% on abatacid, 35%. Um, got uh, RA on placebo. 
These are highly significant. And then they he dropped the bombshell at the end, which was they have 12 more months of follow-up on no drug. And he just said without any data that it looks like there's a persistent effect even after the drug was discontinued. The question is, um, are you going to treat preclinical RA when it shows up in your office? Few tender joints, you know? Who, 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 who what do you think? I see the thing as well that they mentioned, and um, actually, I don't know if, if if you guys remember the Prairie trial a few years ago. I mean, it was quite a bit the same thing. I mean, it was a bit different, of course, with rituximab, but it kind of reminded me of that. But now what they said as well is that you needed to treat three patients to have one with an improvement. What do you think about that? Would you yeah. say, you know, I mean, I would I would wonder if I would, you know, go straight to if I go straight to a patient, I would say, okay, take it, but you have one chance out of three to get better. What do you think? Yeah, I, I'm probably not, I'm still going to stick to my guns. Um, I'm only going to treat synovitis with DMARDs. Everything else is symptomatic management. And it's a little bit like um, clinically quiescent, serologically active lupus. You know, they're, they look good, but their labs say they're not. How much are you going to worry? You know, being CCP positive um, gives you a 20 to 60% chance of progression to RA. You have a positive MRI, it starts going higher. So you just end up following these people cl more closely and, and doing something with them, I think. Um, any other comments on that in preclinical RA? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not terribly enthused about it at all. It, like we have a bad after drug we know works for rheumatoid arthritis. We give it to these people with pre-RA and they get better. Of, of course they do. Like it's the six month data certainly completely expected. If, if there is 18 month data that holds up off drug, that would be more interesting. But there are larger, there's, um, I want to say it's the ARIPA or a PIPRA study. It's a much larger trial also being done with that avatacep and there's something called the STOP-RA trial being done at uh, Pete Center in, in Texas, um, which is uh, hydroxychloroquine um, interventions in that high-risk group. So we'll see. We need more data to make smarter choices with our patients. Um, I think that was about um, any, anything else from plenary. Otherwise, let's close up with uh, anything else that you saw this afternoon that was great. Um, Pete, did you see anything else during the day that you thought was uh, uh, worth mentioning here? Yeah, well, um, let me see. Is this one? Uh, I did think that uh, there were a couple of posters on uh, antiphospholipid syndrome that were pretty interesting. Uh, there was one that just sort of went over the incidents. I think it was in the Georgia registry and uh, secondary APS and SLE was about 14% of patients. Um, and I found that um, kind of interesting just because, you know, I, I don't think that we always check for antiphospholipid syndrome, but there was uh, some data uh, that showed that patients with positive APL have a higher risk of developing nephritis, discoid rash, malar rash, serositis, and uh, neuro manifestations, kind of going along with the, the talk we were, we were discussing earlier with neuropsychiatric um, lupus. And so it was just really trying to push the idea or really, you know, uh, presenting the idea that maybe we should be a lot more cognizant of that and test for those antibodies in those patients. Um, Dr. Petrie also had something where she looked at antiphospholipid or lupus anticoagulant patients who were negative and then went to positive, those who were uh, negative or positive, and then later developed thrombosis. 
And there was, uh, of course, um, some benefit to hydroxychloroquine in the patients who were positive. In fact, some of those patients who were positive became negative uh, on treatment. So those are just some interesting things with lupus anticoagulant and, and APS, I thought. Michelle showed last year really convincingly that LAC is much more predictive of events and being truly sick than is antiphospholipid. I worry about antiphospholipid antibodies as being epiphenomenal, almost like vitamin D. It's always bad in people who are bad. And, and you know, it may not truly be pathogenic. We know when it is pathogenic, but it's not going to be in everyone. Uh, we only have a few minutes left. I want to go around the horn and see um, who's looking forward to what. Um, Bella, do you want to start? Uh, is there anything that you're looking forward to in the next few days? I think before we go there, I, there was one one thing that there was a lot of talk in the OA community hubs talking about tenezumab, the nerve growth factor inhibitor, which is now basically being pulled off. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and I think uh, I'm just looking forward to learning more for the over the next two or three days. Okay, uh, uh, Richard. Yeah, I don't have any particular sessions. I think there's so much excellent stuff coming up. We're just uh, falling over as I was trying to see all this stuff. There's so much brilliant content coming out. Yeah, it's the fire hose of information that is AR, ACR, but that's why you guys are the faculty and the experts to find the good stuff. Um, Orlai? Yeah, I mean, I'm having so much fun so far. I'm sure it's going to continue. I'm, I'm looking forward as pretty much everyone, I think, to hear more about all the jack inhibitor safety, all the, the issues around that, and um, quite a few nice presentations I'm looking forward to. It's nice, there's a nice uh, work looking at uh, meteorology condition and, and, uh, and our reactivity. I think it's going to be a nice one. We hear that a lot in patients. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to all this stuff. Yeah. I'm going to uh, throw out some questions. I'll actually answer them, but you guys comment if you want to. Uh, is treating pre-RA or early RA different than treating palindromic rheumatism? All very different. You know, pre-clinical RA is very different than the next thing along the spectrum, which is probably palindromic rheumatism, which is very different than early RA. And so treating them would therefore be very different. Anyone concerned about the kinetics of vocal sporin responses versus uh, belimumab responses that, you know, vocal sporin might work faster. It seems like it takes a little longer with belimumab, and that's been my experience as well. I've used uh, other calcineurin inhibitors. I haven't used vocal sporin as yet, but uh, I think there's a kinetic advantage there. But, you know, belimumab, you know, the data is there. If you start, you, you saw Michelle Petrie's plots today on where it starts to separate, and it looks like it does take a few weeks. Um, and lastly, um, accessing these drugs um, in, via insurance, uh, it's gonna be a problem in Canada, it's gonna be a problem in uh, Dublin, uh, it's going to be a problem in a lot of places, but I think that uh, it's being positioned as a as sort of a tertiary agent. You know, there's initial therapy, which is pretty simple in lupus. Then there's aggressive therapy, you know, uh, thiopurines and mycophenolate and even, you know, cytoxan. Uh, but, and then, then you have these newer drugs and that's probably where it's being positioned. In those positions, you know, write the letter that says, to not give this life-saving therapy would be medical malpractice. Write it, go on and, and let someone try to deal with that. Someone's gonna get a nervous stomach over reading your letter when it says something like that. We have an example of an appeals letter that Catherine Dow and I wrote on Room Now for people to download. Um, all right, folks, thanks so much for your time. Um, hope you enjoy the rest of the meeting. Uh, uh, everyone out there, tell your friends to tune into these recaps. We're gonna do them again 
Tomorrow night, Sunday night, Monday night, and then Tuesday night, we're going to have the rheumatology roundup with uh, Artie Kavanaugh and I. It's going to be an hour session. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.